Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. My advice would be to show, not tell. Mm. And they're very good at that. I guess I was what you call self-harming. I was, I was, Fiona and I were out walking on the heath and I just started beating myself up physically. Um, I mean, quite badly, really landing blows on myself. And, and as I was doing it, I was, I could tell that Fiona was scared. I was scared. And I just... I can remember thinking, I've got to sort this out. I can't do this on my... I remember having that thought, you can't do this on your own anymore. Stop trying to do it on your own. I used to think, well, if I'm feeling absolutely shit, I don't see why everybody else shouldn't. And, you know, I think that's something I've learned to try very hard not to do. And the way I've tried to do that is to just be very, very open now. I mean, I, I just, I'm very open. As soon as I start to feel myself on a depressive slide, I, the first thing I do is, is tell Fiona, if the kids are here, I'll tell them. Um, if I if it's if I really feel like I'm struggling, I'll phone David, this guy that I see. Um, and then I do, you know, I have lots of different tactics. Um, I do take medication still every day. I I, I try and work all the time. If I'm even if I don't feel like it, I exercise every day. And you know, it's things like you, I might not feel like you know going out for four hours on the bike, but I'll try and do half an hour on the bike. Or I might feel like not going out on the house, but when the house is empty, I'll walk up and down the stairs for half an hour. I'll just do something. And then I have things like music. I find music incredibly important when I'm not feeling great. I don't read papers. I, I listen to, uh, I read books and I listen to music rather than that. Um, and then, you know, just tr I, I try to retreat into things that I know have helped me through before. Uh, but I think the openness is the most important thing. I really do. I think that has been the key to for both of us, really. Yeah, I think, um, well, it was only when I, Alistair wrote this book about depression and they asked me to write the last chapter about what it was like living with somebody who had depression. And it, as I wrote yeah. it, I mean, thinking in ink is always very good. And as I wrote it, I could feel myself analysing my own feelings and, and realising that for most of our life together, I've I blamed myself for however he was. And he, as he says, he, people who are mentally ill can be quite manipulative. He was quite happy to make me feel guilty. Um, so once I'd realised that 
I was wrong. You know, it wasn't. I may have been doing things that exacerbated the situation, but fundamentally, it wasn't my fault. Life it became a lot easier. And actually, then I started this small sort of support group with people who contacted me after they read the book, and we meet every couple of weeks to talk online. They've all got depressive partners. It's so interesting some of the common characteristics that have come out from these various different people. Um, and and guilt and blame is a big big part of it. You know, it's very very common for people who live with somebody who's mentally ill to feel that it's their fault because they're usually the cat that gets kicked. And you think if this yeah. person I live with and I love very much is very unhappy, it must be something that I'm doing that's wrong. And actually, it's, by and large, that isn't the case. It's something else that's going on. And you need to try and understand that. It's like being a detective. You need to try and understand what's going on in their head. And it's really very difficult to understand if you haven't suffered from depression, what it is like for somebody who does have it. One of the things that I talk a lot about with my with David, the psychiatrist, he he defines my central problem as a never-ending conflict between self and service, between mm. wanting a nice life, looking after myself, you know, really doing things that I want to do, but at the same time kind of feeling an exaggerated sense of responsibility about the state of the world. And I sometimes, when I'm in a bad way, when the depression and the anxiety are both kicking in, I can literally lie in bed and I can develop a mental process where I become, at the end of it, single-handedly to blame for climate, for climate <laughs> crisis. You know, I could just... And I know it's irrational, but when, you, when you're feeling like that, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible feeling. So that definitely triggered something in me, and I wasn't very good for a while afterwards. Back in the day, when I had the first breakdown, I think that drink had played a large... I think I covered up a lot of my other stuff with drink, and I think what I did after that, when I stopped drinking, was to cover it up with work. And so the workaholism, which people who I was working with kind of liked and respected, although to be fair to Tony Blair, he sometimes worried I, I overdid it. But I think that was the way that I dealt with it. So even though it's only when I went back through, when I published my diaries and I went back through them, it's only then that I really realised that it was obvious I'd had quite a lot of quite bad depressive phases, but I just kind of powered my way through them in the main. Um, and the thing about when you're doing something as, as all-consuming as we were doing, it you kind of do have the capacity to do that. But and, and even though it makes you feel terrible and exhausted when you're not doing it, I don't know, I, I know lots of people can't do this and they collapse, but I, I most of the time I was able to keep going. But I think the thing to remember is that Alistair was never diagnosed with anything until 2005, mm. which was two years after we'd left number 10. So it, as time went on, it seemed like the breakdown was a sort of one-off incident. Didn't really feel like he was mentally ill. But looking back now, he's obviously suffered from depression all of his life. And the breakdown was a culmination of a very bad sort of depressive period that was covered up with a lot of alcohol. You're in his life all of the time. So did you see that? Not really, no, because what I know now about mental health, I now realise that there were so many signs there that we ignored because people, you know, we're talking about the sort of 90s into the noughties. People didn't talk about mental health in the way they do now. And I think there was a... If people were high-functioning, I suppose, and holding down very successful jobs, nobody would have thought they could possibly be mentally ill at the same time. Now it's become much more common for famous people and successful people to talk about their mental health and, and ill health. That wasn't the case then. And because Alistair refused to have any psychiatric assistance or help after he left his the hospital where he had his nervous breakdown in Scotland, um, 
it, life just went back to normal. There was no di- there was no diagnosis. There was no medication. There were no regular psychiatric appointments. There was nothing. It was like the job became the new alcohol, really, in a way, in the form of self medication. On the subject then of King Charles the um, Third, what is the what is the task for him moving forward? I mean, he has to be apolitical now, which he hasn't been in the past, and we've known a lot about his thoughts prior prior to this. Um, what what if you were advising him? What would your advice be? to him in the in the sort of days and months and weeks that follow i look i i did an interview with prince william a few years ago for gq magazine and i asked him george was just a little child at the time so i said look there's only really three people in the country who can sort of genuinely sit around and say to themselves you know i either am in the case of the queen or i might be one day quite soon the monarch okay there's only three of you i said do you ever sit around just the three of you chatting about the job and what it entails and how differently you might do it. And William said, no, we've never, ever done that, which I was genuinely surprised by. He then said, the truth is you have to work it out for yourself. You have to work out how you're going to do it. And what that says to me is I I don't think Charles necessarily will become that different. Um, there's a difference between being political and being engaged in political events and debate. And I hope he does carry on saying things that, uh, I mean, what the Queen was very good at is never being defined as as party political. Um, and I don't think Charles, I remember there was, one, there was once when we felt Charles was getting a bit too close, we felt defending the so-called forces of conservatism. Mm. But I think he's actually been quite radical on some issues. And I think it'd be a shame if he just sort of, Forgot that. My advice would be to show, not tell. Mm. And they're very good at that. They're mm. very good at that. I think show, not tell is the way. Don't have raging headlines saying Charles rants at Liz Truss lifting the ban on fracking. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> out and about on visits, you could, you could communicate an awful lot. Yeah, there was a great article about the Queen's clothes and how she used what she was wearing to... So, like, when Trump came, she wore this brooch that had been given to her by the Obamas. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, when she went to Ireland, she had a, a big shamrock on her collar without she didn't have to say anything. So what about Meghan and Harry? I mean, everyone watches this with, you know, oh, crikey. I mean, most of us are sort of in disbelief at the next thing that sort of occurs in the media. I mean, Alistair, you know more than anybody that relationship with the media. I mean, what, what do you think is really going on there? What is, what is happening here? Is it, is it just that, you know, they want to go away and do their own thing? It feels very much like it's, it's, it's very much in public view. It's not as private as they, as they suggested it might be. I mean, the honest answer is I don't know. Um, and I think one of the reasons that the Queen... My favourite line about the Queen was Tina Brown wrote this wonderful piece in the New York Times, and she said, we're so going to miss not knowing what she thinks. <laughs> Thing is, if you were advising them, I'm sure you would say, look, you've got to decide what you want to do. Do you want to be a royal? If you don't want to be a royal, stop kind of pretending to be a royal and stop giving in to stop talking about them all the time. I mean, I think that I think they need to kind of shut that side of it down and get on with whatever good works they can do, but not kind of looks to me like they kind of don't want to be royal, but they want to cash in on their royal status by mm. earning money out of it. And I think that's not a great look for them. I think a lot of people do see it like that. I mean, it's, uh, and you know, that because then you get accused of all these other things, like you said, of being racist or misogynistic. But I mean, the bottom line is you can't sort of stand there and wipe a tear away and then give an interview the next day saying, oh, they made my life a misery. 
misery. It just looked bad. Yeah, but he was, he, you know, Harry was, that was his grandmother who was being, you know, laid to I'm rest. I'm talking about and, her, not him. No, I know, but and, he, and, he's, and she's his wife. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, yeah, I think, and also I think there's an element of they're very privileged and it's not, it sort of feels a bit uneasy to me to have people who've got so much wealth and, you know, privilege and power to be moaning constantly about how awful their lives are when there are people whose lives are really bloody awful and they're the ones we should be worrying about, really. If um, an everyday person like, you know, myself is saying to you guys, what can I do to perform better every day? What, what would it be? What would your little nugget be to tell me what to do every day, which would mean I'd perform better in life? I mean, Fiona, why didn't you go first? Well, I, I honestly think the cold swimming is quite an amazing <laughs> psychological <laughs> boost to start the day with. I do. And I, I speak as somebody who's swum in normal indoor pools for most of my life but it does certainly sharpen up the start of the day and and then I do a lot of yoga as well what I would do George is I would ask you to come around here and look at the wall behind my laptop where you will see some great words of wisdom from lots of different people funny enough one of them Fiona has already quoted which is think in ink Marilyn Monroe I bet you didn't know Marilyn Monroe said that um Everything is impossible till you make it happen. Nelson Mandela, you can have that one. If there's nobody in your way, you're not going anywhere. Bobby Kennedy. Um, what about the... By, by failing to prepare, you're yeah. preparing to fail. Benjamin Franklin. Um, What's the one about being... Part let of the team? racket do oh, the talking, John eat. McEnroe. <laughs> <laughs> you can have that one. It's amazing what you... <laughs> It's amazing what... Yeah, but that doesn't apply to me. It's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. Mm, I like that. Uh, what about this one? Ted Lasso. It's never the wrong time to do the right thing. I love Ted Lasso. <laughs> love it. Guilty pleasure. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks, yeah, well, he's guys. Up, he's up there on my, on my, on my wall of fame. <laughs> oh, you'll like this one, Ben. Ben will like this one. Ben will like this one. Waiting for your opponent to fail is never a strategy. Gary Kasparov. That's good. Could be waiting a long time. <laughs>
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.